Hello and welcome to That's So Shelley podcast with your host, Michelle Filan. I'm here to talk to you about life, health, fitness, motherhood and mindset. My goal is to maybe make you laugh, connect with real life stories, share some information and insights, offer some tips, education and maybe have a little bit of crack along the way. Thank you so much for tuning in and let's jump into the next episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm your host Michelle Filan and today I wanted to um, talk about something that I know people would um, maybe have an idea of or kind of I suppose in a sense know it happened um, but I wanted to I suppose um, tell my story for the first time maybe in an in-depth um real way about going through brain surgery and the effects that that had but also to share that we'll all face challenges and we'll all go through things that you know sometimes we can deem as just simply unfair unwanted um but there are things that we can do to get through through them and i'm going to share some of the things that I suppose that I've learned along the way as I have navigated my way through my journey of my health and becoming a mother and just the effects that that has had on me as a person and possibly how it's changed me in a very um, deep and different way than I was probably ever expecting. So thank you for joining me on this episode. I hope that listening to it, you take something from it and that you find maybe some courage or to know that you are stronger and more resilient than you think. Um, Because there were times where I really, really struggled and didn't know if I was going to find a way to ever be positive or happy or that my life was ever going to be anything other than dealing with health issues and motherhood and just being completely swamped in stress and anxiety and not knowing if there was going to be a way out of that. Um, So I'm going to take you back to my brain surgery um, journey and how it began in the first place. at this point, we all know we went through a pandemic and I believe that there is another episode in that because I do believe that there's a lot of residual um, effects and anxiety and depression and trauma for a lot of women out there who um, went through the pandemic, not just women, but obviously this podcast is um, mainly women that would be listening in. So to the women that are, I know there's quite a lot of trauma for people that um, went through the pandemic and particularly around because obviously it's my story um, around motherhood and pregnancy and birth all during the pandemic. And I really think that um, there are things that people are holding on to that um, it's quite difficult um, for them to to let that go um, because it was a really difficult time for people. But for me, obviously, the pandemic happened and I... Um, like everybody didn't know what was happening or what was going on. And you were kind of just going with the flow of life at that point and listening to the news and wondering, you know, what the hell was happening basically. Um, But we were very, very, very blessed to um, have been pregnant and we were pregnant just before the pandemic and all that news, um, that news came out. So it obviously made us, or, you know, me in particular, a little bit more nervous about the world because we hadn't a clue what was going on. And then there was this big health scare and I'm pregnant. So um, I'm sure there's plenty of women who will resonate with that kind of that nervous um, anxiety just about your unborn baby and how how that was going to affect, um, you know, your your child. Um, but we were blessed. We were we were pregnant and we I had a very really like a really, really good pregnancy. Um, again, I know I'm, I'm really lucky in that I had no sickness. 
at all. I mean, I had the tiredness and that, but I didn't have any of the morning, you know, sickness or um, no severe symptoms at all. I was quite, uh, I had an easy pregnancy, if that's the right word or terminology to use. And I quite enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed the pregnancy. And again, it was during the pandemic. So a lot of um, businesses were closed. So we actually spent a lot of time at home. And for me, um, I've worked all my life. Um, I've always been doing something. So this was probably the first time I'd actually, you know, sat <laughs> and um, just kind of took it all in. And because I was pregnant, it gave me an opportunity to just sit and, and almost um, a buy, like it was okay for me to just um, tap out and take a little bit of time because of the fact that I was pregnant. Now, obviously I had a business and I was running a business and I had staff and, you know, there was a lot of um, stress because of that. Um, but at the same time, I was okay and I was content and we were, we were really looking forward to, you know, to Kobe and so everything was was doing well and we were feeling good and um, the pregnancy was progressing really, really well. Um, when I found out then later in the pregnancy that uh, Kobe was breech, um, I was devastated, to be honest. And I, I actually wasn't sure how to really um, process that information. And I just, I think because I had just expected it to be a vaginal birth and that I wasn't going to be thinking about cesarean sections and, and Colby being breached or anything like that. Um, so I had a little bit of um, a hard time accepting that, I will say at the start. And Liam would come home from work because he was able to still work and uh, I'd be upside down in God knows what position. And he'd be like, what are you doing now? And uh, I'm like, I've got to get this baby to move. So um, there was no budging him, of course. He was stubborn as he is now at uh, two and a half. Um, but he wasn't he wasn't going to he wasn't going to turn. So I just had to. um accept that he was going to be breech and that I was going to have an elective um, section. So it was all very, very calm. My section was booked in and obviously if he had turned and, or anything like in, in the meantime, you know, things would, would be different, but he didn't. And so my elective um, section was booked and very calmly we arrived, you know, on that morning and it was actually quite a quiet day in the hospital that day, which was which was great for us because this was during the pandemic where, you know, Liam wasn't allowed to stay with me for the entire time. He had to like drop my bags and then he had to go back out and he had to sit outside and then he had to wait for the phone call to say that he was allowed in. So all of that happened and we were very blessed, very calm and um, Kobe was born and it was beautiful and it was amazing and it was so special. And we went back to the ward and you just adored every moment of connecting with this teeny tiny little human that you're now responsible for. And now you have this just beautiful little family together. And it was just absolutely magical. And this was on the back of a really tough time of, you know, going through the pandemic and trying to navigate that, of trying to navigate, you know, a business and, you know, having lost my mom, um, you know, less than a year before. So it was such a special moment to have, you know, our baby there and safe and all was well. So we were really in a good, you know, a good place, you know, considering all of the challenges that we had faced even to that point. And um, I had the most beautiful um, nurse. In fact, I have to say everybody on the maternity ward was really, really amazing. I, I, I can't speak highly of them enough in my experience. And um, they looked after me and they looked after Kobe and I really felt very, um, I, I just felt well taken care of, you know, in the circumstances when they were so under pressure, they weren't allowed to have, you know, we weren't allowed to have, you know, people in, Liam was only allowed in for like an hour in the evenings and stuff. So it was a difficult time for them as well. So I had Kobe, Kobe was born at like quarter past one on the Monday and that night, um, that was the first night, and I had help with the, the nurses, and um, they were brilliant, and it was a great help. The next day, it was it was lovely, 
Um, now, obviously, you're extremely sore about a section. You can't move. It's horrendous. You can't cough. You can't sneeze. I mean, oh, my God. Like, it is abdominal surgery, and it's major abdominal surgery. So I found it, like, I did find it quite painful. Um, so Liam came in that night, and then I had, um, you know, a little shower or whatever, and, you know, he got to spend time with Kobe and was loving. And that night, then, I had Kobe, and I wasn't feeling very well. And I just... I couldn't shake it and I just assumed that I'm after having a C-section, I'm after having a baby, I'm just not feeling well and this is probably, I don't know, the norm. I wasn't really kind of thinking anything, um, to be honest, just that I wasn't really feeling very well. Um, my blood pressure had um, started to become affected and I've never, I suppose prior to this, I've never had any health issues. So that was the key. I've never been sick. I've never had health issues. I've never had any problems. I had a healthy pregnancy. So all of this, as it transpired, was very, very, very new to me. Um, so I wasn't feeling too well that night. And I was awake, obviously, as you are with a, with a, a newborn baby. So I knew, obviously, lack of sleep was going to be an issue. Um, and I'll actually, I'll never, ever, ever forget this because of stories that I've heard, you know, since, um, since having Kobe and, and obviously my own situation, but I was not feeling very well. There was, I believe four other women, maybe there was six um, of us in the room, but it was either four or six. I think it was a, a, an even number. And I was in the corner bed beside the window and it was about, I think maybe six seven in the morning or something something close to that anyway six or seven in the morning and I was and um, the curtain was closed Kobe was there I was holding him and you know the usual just adoring every second and I just felt really ill I just there was something so wrong and I could feel it I had just put Kobe back down into his little bassinet beside me in the bed and that was the last I remember and it was this was probably one of the scariest things that I've ever felt in my life. I, at that point, had just put Kobe down into his bassinet and then I blacked out and I had a seizure. I could have been holding him. There's so many coulds and possibilities and I'm so blessed that I, I had put him down into his little bed um, because I blacked out and I bit my thumb I was shaking in the bed I was completely disorientated I don't even, I don't remember the actual seizure itself I just remember that you know I'd hurt myself I'd bit my thumb I'd done all of those things what I do remember is waking up in the hospital bed not knowing where I was I had no memory of having a baby I had no idea where I was and I was screaming and these screams were screams that I've never I, I can't even, I actually, I'm pretty sure I cannot put this into words, how absolutely terrified I felt in myself. And I looked around and there was people everywhere. I mean, I'd say, I'd, I don't know how many, but there were a lot of doctors and nurses and just people there. And I was looking around and I was so disorientated. I couldn't make sense of where I was. And I, I mean, I feel so terrible for the other women who are on that maternity ward with me having to experience that because that must have been really difficult for them, them with newborn babies and me sitting there screaming the house down after having a seizure and not knowing where I am. It was, uh, it really was terrifying. And that, I think that has never left me, that fear um of just being completely unaware of where you are and what was going on and not even remembering that you had a baby i just i found that really really terrifying um and i remember the nurses there and i remember bernie actually was the nurse and i remember her holding my hand and like looking into my eyes because they were all wearing masks at the time and you couldn't really see so you couldn't I just you know there was masks and people everywhere and doctors and nurses and it was so busy and I just remember holding my hand and looking <coughs> into my eyes <coughs> excuse me and being like you're okay you're here you're in the hospital and I slowly started to come back into the room and 
get some sense of, of what had just happened. And then I realized, oh my God, you know, where, where's Kobe? <laughs> I kept mixing up his, his name for a few days, which is really funny. I couldn't because my, my whole, my head, my senses, my awareness, everything was just a bit frazzled. But, uh, so that was, that was the start of my situation. That was the start of my story. And, uh, excuse me. <coughs> um, and when I spoke to Liam afterwards, actually, he was up early that morning as a farmer and he was out and he was checking the cattle <laughs> and um, as he does. And obviously in his absolute element, he had just had, you know, you know, his first child and he was so happy. And he got a phone call from a hospital to say that he had to come straight to the hospital that um you know something had happened and you know when we spoke about it later Liam is the most calm cool collected person ever who just does not get frazzled or upset or stressed I've never met anyone so calm in my life and he said you know obviously later um that that was the scariest phone call he's ever received because he just you weren't expecting it and you're not expecting to hear that there's something wrong and it was um it was really really hard for him to get that call but from there, it led to having numerous tests. So I spent a week in the hospital with Gobi. And in some ways, it kind of helped me um, make sure that I was transitioning into motherhood and that I had a little bit more help because obviously I'd spent a week in the hospital and naturally I wanted to get home, but it was what it was. So I had to spend a week in the hospital and then I had to go and get tests. So I got tests in the hospital and they found, I was told in the hospital that um, they found an abnormality on my brain. And to be honest, hearing all of that information within that time frame, in that situation, in that state that you're in, I'm not really sure if I absorbed the information correctly or if I took it in or if I knew what the hell was actually going on. And um bearing in mind covid so again i'm kind of alone for a lot of these things and a lot of conversations and stuff and if i'm honest i probably don't remember half of it because how would you in that kind of i'm just after becoming a mother for the first time my body is all over the place i've had a c-section i've now had a seizure i'm literally in an absolute heap and then there's people talking to me about my health and what's going on and i'm on my own and i don't know what to think um, and there's probably stuff that they've told me that I don't even remember. Um, and I'm sure actually that is the case. But after finding out then that I had an abnormality on my brain, um, they referred me to Dublin. So this is kind of where everything started off. And I know that after you have a C-section, you're not allowed to drive for six weeks. And to be told then that you're after having a seizure and I was sent to uh, a neurologist and a, a neurosurgeon. Um, and it was diagnosed after they'd done scans that I had a, what they call an antravenous malformation, which is an AVM. And it's a rare brain condition where there is a cluster of arteries and veins, and there's a bit of a mix up in the wiring of your brain. <laughs> Lol, <laughs> as my family and uh, friends might say, not surprised. Um, but that's what it was. And that was diagnosed by doing numerous tests so i'm not sure if you're familiar with the amount of <clears throat> or with um with the different tests that they would do um for your brain but i had to have um an angiogram and an angiogram is where they and if you're squeamish please fast forward and don't listen but it is where they feed a tube you have to lie flat on a metal bed and they feed a tube from your groin all the way up to your brain and then they inject some of their juice and they basically light up your brain centers and they can see different things um, on your on your brain. And then you have to lie flat on your back for like four or five hours um, so that your artery can heal and then they can let you home. So usually it's a day procedure and not going to lie, an angiogram is, I found, absolutely horrendous. Um, so I started with that test and I got an angiogram done. I had MRIs done, ECGs, EECs, <laughs> basically every letter of the alphabet. And 
numerous tests. And it was quite daunting, obviously, because again, and I'm going to probably say this a lot, but everything was during COVID. So every single visit I had, I was alone. Every single appointment I went to, I went to alone. And this was from pregnancy appointments to scans to basically everything. I was alone. And now I was starting into this brain journey and understanding what was after happening to me and all of the appointments I had to do were all alone. And this was really devastating because I think that for me at the time, it was very difficult to actually absorb any of the information that I was being given because I was pregnant. I was postnatal. I'm my hormones are all over the place. I'm all over the place. And now I'm traveling to different appointments and I can't even absorb this information and I'm trying to remember things. And then people are asking me, my family is asking me, like, I don't know. Um, because I think when you're in sound mind and body, um, absorbing information from doctors and things can be quite overwhelming. Um, so definitely for me, I found it a kind of difficult to process all of the information that I was after being, um, after being told. So I sat there after getting a diagnosis of an AVM and intravenous malformation on my brain. I was after having a full-blown seizure and I was told that I'm now not allowed to drive my car for 12 months minimum because of the seizure that I had, that I will potentially need to have open brain surgery and or radiation therapy. There's three different types of procedures that you can have, but the most successful is um, open brain surgery or radiotherapy. Um, in the meantime, what could potentially happen with an AVM on your brain, depending obviously on the size and where it's located, all of, lots of different factors. But for me, I was told, you know, you could have had, or I could have a hemorrhage. I could have a bleed on my brain. I could have a stroke seizure. Um, so there was a lot of potential side effects that could have happened to me at any stage of my life. And I didn't, I didn't actually know it. But in that moment, then I knew that for the rest of my life, I was going to be worried that I might potentially have a bleed on my brain. I might have a stroke um, because these were all side effects or factors that could actually happen. Um, the risks they say are low, but they're there. And an AVM is something that you're born with. It's not hereditary, it's not passed down, it's not, it's just something that you have and you can live and you can die with an AVM and never know. Um, but now I knew. And I had played sport my whole life. I've been hit. I've, you know, you know, it, like you're at any time of my life, it could have happened. Um, but we believe now that it was down to the pressures of um, having Kobe and going through, um, you know, the birthing process and that affecting my blood pressure, which triggered the seizure, which then led to finding the AVM. And with that, the AVM possibly triggered the seizure, but they can't know for sure because you can have a seizure and not have an AVM. So they effectively had to treat me in a way that it was kind of two separate um, issues, albeit it was probably all down to the AVM. I was also told that it was very surprising to actually have an AVM, have a seizure, and then not have any bleeding or any um, actual side effects, like anything else, like a stroke or a bleed on the brain. They, they were very surprised at that. Um, I didn't, considering the fact that I'd had a seizure. Um, so I feel very lucky in that sense that I had the seizure, they found the AVM, but I had no side effects in the sense that I didn't, um, it didn't cause the AVM to bleed on my brain. Um, I was sent home then and I'm left with the knowledge that I now have a rare brain condition. I could have a stroke or a seizure or a bleed and I'm not allowed to drive for 12 months. It's during a pandemic. You're on your own. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't exercise. You can't work. You're also postnatal. You've had a C-section and you're alone. And I was devastated because I thought 
I was going to bounce back from having a baby <laughs> and I was going to be flying it in, you know, a few months and all would be great and the world would be back open and we would have had time with Kobe because of the COVID situation. But it completely flipped on its head when I was given that brain diagnosis. And in some respects, I felt very, um, I felt like it was very, it was so unfair. <laughs> I felt like it was unfair. I felt like the, the world was against me at this point. <laughs> um, I felt like I was really alone because I don't think people understand that much about the brain. And there is obviously, I'm not trying to compare this to anything, but if somebody says I have cancer or whatever, obviously your your automatic reaction is you know that it's very serious and that you know people rally around i feel but for me i feel like it was my brain and people don't understand it as much so there wasn't as much of a rally it was also during a pandemic so people didn't need to and maybe in a sense i wasn't open to it either because i've always been quite a closed person as well um but i found it devastating and I felt very, very isolated and I felt very, very alone. And also I had become a new mother. So I was really kind of, I was really stuck with processing all of this. And then Dr. Google came out because, because of the fact that it was a rare brain condition and um, there's not that much information on it. I was Dr. Google's best friend. I mean, I went down rabbit holes that didn't even exist. Like it was so difficult because if you're told a certain thing and then there's information on it, then you can read that information and then you can try and kind of, I don't know, make peace with it in some sense. But for me, I didn't have the information. It wasn't there because it was so rare. And uh, my neurosurgeon and my neurologist, like they laughed and they laugh now. Like I actually get on quite well. My neurologist, like it does be laughing because I'd have lists I'd be emailing like lists. What's the, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And how about this? And what do you think of that? And can I do this? And can I do that? And they used to be laughing. They were like, oh my God, like you're hilarious. And I'm like, well, sure. I haven't a clue what's going on. And I need, I'm a person that needs information. I need information and I need facts. And that's going to help me figure my way and navigate my way out of this. So from there on in, I had to they had to find out whether I was able to have the open brain surgery or whether I needed to go go down the radiotherapy route because it doesn't suit. Obviously, there'd be different reasons why certain people can have certain certain things. So for me, they brought me up for a second angiogram and uh, because they wanted to test my speech on my brain um, and where it was located on my brain. So my AVM was located on the right hand side of my brain and the speech is located for 90% of people, your speech is on the left-hand side of your brain. So they were happy because obviously my AVM was on the right-hand side, which is not the, the typical side that your speech is on. There is 10% of people in the population that have, now these are approximates obviously, um, that would have their speech on the right-hand side of the brain and they tend to be left-handed. And I am left-handed, of course I am. So they said they wanted to obviously take all of the boxes to make sure that um, they'd obviously ran all their tests and everything that they needed to know before they decided on what route they were going to take for my um, recovery. So they brought me up, they'd done an angiogram. Within that angiogram, they performed what they called a WADA test. A WADA test is where they actually switch. This is insane stuff, by the way. But what they actually do is they switch your speech center off in your brain to see if it has an effect. So basically what they wanted was they were going to switch the speech center off my brain and then they were going to hope that I'd still be able to chat away because I would have been talking through the procedure and that everything would be fine because that would mean then that they're able to operate on the right hand side of my brain because my speech hadn't been affected because that's the water part, the water test that they were testing. So of course they'd done the water test they switched off the speech center on like on my brain and I couldn't speak. <laughs> so I was slurring my words and all of that. So basically the, now I'm clearly not a doctor. So explaining this is uh, not going to, um, 
uh, not going to be how a doctor would explain it. But obviously um, what they found was that I had speech on the right side of my brain, which was where they were going to be performing the operation, which meant they had to go back to the drawing board because they thought I would not be able to have the operation because of the speech being located or part of or some of my speech being located on the right hand side of my brain, which is where the operation was going and um, was going to take place. And that is what led to them actually doing um, awake brain surgery. So the brain surgery that I um, the type of brain surgery. I had to be woken up during my surgery. So I ended up having an awake craniotomy and they had to get me to speak during my open brain surgery um, to make sure that they didn't affect my speech center when they performed the operation. Um, but prior to navigating my way to the operation, it took nine months before I actually had the operation. So Kobe was nine months old when I had my operation. And between that nine months, I found it to be the most challenging nine months of my life. And actually, funny enough, not because of motherhood. Um, and I genuinely would have thought that I would have struggled um, in motherhood because I felt like I wasn't the most maternal um, woman. But actually, Kobe was just, I mean, amazing. Um, so motherhood wasn't really the, I mean, obviously I think everyone struggles a little bit of motherhood and you know, you have your anxieties around, around that, but I just, maybe it was a deflection because I struggled so much with the thoughts of my surgery and what was going to happen with my health. And again, because I didn't have that much information, my life was lived in like, what ifs? I was so unsure, I had no control over it. And I'm a little bit of a control freak. <laughs> I like to know things. I'm, I do laugh and I like, you know, people say, let's go with the flow. I'm like, yeah, but what kind of time is the flow starting at? And like, what do we wear to the flow? Like things outside of my control, I get very anxious about. Um, and I had no control over this. So this was really soul destroying for me. Um, I wasn't allowed to drive. So I was now at home with a, a newborn baby. I was completely alone because you know, Liam had to work. Um, I couldn't go anywhere because I wasn't allowed to drive. It was during a pandemic, so there was restrictions in place. I was so utterly isolated. You, you can't, I, I, I feel I just couldn't have been more isolated if I, if I tried. I was, I just felt so alone and I think it's a very hard place to be because it's not like I was alone but I felt it in my soul that I was so alone and also when you get the information that you have such a massive um, health issue it's a very lonely place as well because there was nobody I could talk to I had nobody to talk to I had nobody that understood what I was going through and the fears that I had and the stress that that caused in my life and in my in my head and in my body i could feel it in my body the anxiety the stress and the fear of what was to come and i as i said spent so much time researching and trying to find information like my neurosurgeon professor javapur was his name and he actually sent me articles like he emailed me articles that i could read because i just i needed i needed concrete information and it's one of those things that were was all a bit like ifs and buts and maybes because there was there's no two brains the same and there's no two situations the same and everybody can you know ha has different brains and blah, blah 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 so it's like okay great um but Here's, you know, here's a couple of articles that just might, you know, help you answer, you know, and navigate some of the questions at least that you have. So that's what I did. I, I read the articles. I, I tried to be pragmatic about the situation, but it's very difficult when you've been given a diagnosis like that. And then to be 
to find out that you have to have awake open brain surgery is a really scary thing because as you're told no two brains are the same and their fear was that I would lose my speech or that I would have a stroke and I think they were kind of the two main um because they were afraid I'd have a bleed on the brain during the operation so they were kind of the major things but obviously Professor Sharpevoort is clearly a professional in what he does and would not have like done the operation if you know he thought it was going to be in any in any way you know too um too unsafe for me to to do so obviously his reassurance was really you know um empowering and it was really helpful and like lean wholeheartedly believed it'll be grand and i think that's literally his motto in life it'll be grand everything will be fine um whereas i was just kind of terrified to be honest um now we were very happy that he was able to do some zoom calls with us at the time so we were able to like have lean there so that he was able to ask questions and stuff as well um because every other appointment that i had to physically go to in the hospital i had to go to alone now trying to navigate this was the other side of you know the whole you're you're dealing with the stress of being having this diagnosis and having to have the surgery and figuring out your health and all of that I also had the impact of becoming a new mother and trying to navigate that my body is all over the place and now I can't drive anywhere so all of the appointments that we go to I have to try and organize lifts and because we have a newborn baby and you know as we go through obviously he's he's getting older and a few months old but all of my appointments were in Dublin and trying to get to Dublin to go to these appointments and get people to get lifts and try and get public transport it, it was really difficult um during that time uh, because I wasn't allowed to drive and then even if you had um an angiogram done there were certain things that I had done that I wasn't going to be allowed to drive to even if I could drive so I was I had became so um <clears throat> reliant on others and that really didn't sit with me I I'm very independent and I I have always been that way. So in essence for me my independence was stripped away from me and then that made me question an awful lot of things in my life. I was stripped bare. I couldn't exercise because of everything that was happening postnatally, C-section, brain surgery, the information I've been given, I'm not allowed to exercise in a way that I would normally do. That has been my identity identity and been part of my life my whole life and now I'm not allowed to do that who am I without that so that brought up a lot of questions for me um i was isolated and i was not able to leave the house unless somebody else brought me somewhere i could not go to tesco if i went to tesco i either had to get a taxi to tesco or lean would have to bring me to tesco and then lean and baby kobe would be sitting out in the car in tesco while i'm walking around nobody is comfortable with that you know your your independence is completely stripped from you that brought up other things for me things that had happened in my past that i was very isolated and and um you know afraid of um and that started to bring up a lot of things in my past so now i have no independence i'm not able to work i have a newborn baby I can't go anywhere. I'm lonely. I'm afraid. And I'm trying to navigate all of this, process all of this information, look after our new baby, and then somehow not fall apart completely. Um and I found it all to be really really difficult so how i helped myself was i started um speaking to a counselor online before my operation because i knew i needed more help with navigating how i was feeling about the whole thing and how i was feeling about the looming surgery and how i was going to navigate that and so that's what I I did. I recruited I recruited um a therapist to to speak to about that. And 
he was really, really helpful. And he was able to just listen, I guess, and understand my concerns because I was so fearful of what was to come. And the brain surgery itself, a lot of the times when you're going through or when you're going through something, it's, it's, it's actually the fear for me, it was the fear of the unknown. It was the fear of not knowing what was going to happen and how my health was going to be in the future and how I was going to recover. It was all of those unknown things that really played havoc with my mind. So I became very, very, very stressed. I became very withdrawn and I just didn't know how to, I didn't know how to speak with people. I became very angry actually. And I became very, um, woes and poor me in a sense, because I felt like I was just so alone. And I, I suppose I'm saying that a lot, but I really did feel it. Um, I live, you know, in a beautiful part of the country, but I was alone. And again, as I say, we have to remember that it was the times and it was during the pandemic and people like those times where people weren't allowed to travel five kilometers outside their house. So I mean, I carried that with me and that trauma. That's what I was saying at the beginning, like for women who have gone through things during the pandemic and are still carrying a bit, a bit of trauma from that. I know I certainly did. Um, when we went in to have, when I went in to have the brain surgery, fast forward nine months, the surgery has taken place on the 6th of September, 2021. I remember going in and having to stay the night before and um, Liam actually came up and stayed we obviously he wasn't allowed into the hospital and he I was brought down to the surgery at like eight o'clock or something that morning and he was going to get a phone call because Liam was left again sitting outside in the car park um, in Beaumont for eight hours while I went through surgery because it took that long it was quite a long um surgery and they went through the procedure the whole lot and then I woke up and at that point, I actually thought everything, obviously I'd gone through recovery or whatever. The surgery itself took, I think, between seven or eight hours. Um, then I was in recovery and then I woke up and I actually thought, oh, wow, I'm actually, I'm, I'm okay here. I'm, 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 I'm actually doing well. Um, so I rang Liam and I spoke to him on the phone and I was like, I'm actually doing really well. I can't believe it. And this was around the time that um, obviously the football was playing, but it was like dates were all over the place because it was COVID and it was the year that Mayo played against Tyrone in the All-Ireland final that we were all sure that Mayo were going to win. Anyway, um, but I remember just talking to him at that point saying everything was fine. And then later on being brought onto the ward and then I was sitting there and I don't know what, did he ring me or what happened or was he checking in? But I actually thought that I was having a stroke and they had to bring me off because Liam was actually after heading down the road, that was it. And they, I was really worried. I thought something had happened. And I thought I'd, I was after having a stroke. So they brought me off, rushed me off, and they had they done a CT scan. And as it transpired, it wasn't, um, thankfully. But what I ended up having was severe swelling on my brain. So that swelling on my brain then led me to being very, very ill um, for a number of weeks. Um, I lost my speech. I had asphagia. Um, I could not say that. I didn't even know what that was. <laughs> um, but I had asphagia. I had cognitive issues. Um, memory was gone. Didn't remember passwords. Didn't remember um, lots of different things. I could remember. I remembered I had a son. I remembered, you know, Liam and that. But I couldn't remember passwords or things that, like, if I was to say, what was your hairdresser's name? I'd have absolutely no idea. Um, I couldn't speak, so I couldn't get words out. I could not communicate. Everything was upside down. For me, everything was backwards and upside down and inside out. So I could not speak. I knew inside me what I wanted to say, but I couldn't talk. I couldn't get the words out. So I felt a little bit trapped in my own mind. And I was also extremely ill. I couldn't eat. I was so sick. And... I felt really at a low, low, low point at this at this time. This was about three or four days probably into, into my brain surgery. And I was just so helpless and I was so alone and I was so ill and I was so sick and I couldn't eat and I couldn't talk. I could barely walk. 
And I just felt like my whole dignity and life had been stripped from me. I haven't heard from or spoke to or communicated with my husband or my family because I'm not able. I'm so ill. Nobody is allowed in to see me. And I'm just struggling to cope with everything that's been dished my way. And I spent, I spent a month in the hospital in Beaumont when they thought I was going to be in and out in five days. That's what they said. But I ended up spending a month and that was a full month away from my baby, from Kobe, from everyone. I started to feel a little bit better kind of coming into the third week, if you like. So just after two weeks, I started to feel a little bit better. I was moved to my own room and I really had some really, really, really lovely um, nurses and speech and language therapists and um, just some really, um, just really lovely, lovely people to help. Um, and their kindness kind of was really important at that time because I was so completely um, out of it. Um, and ill and just sad. Um, I went into the operation not knowing how I was going to wake up. I didn't know if I was going to have lost my speech. I didn't know if I'd ever be able to talk again. Um, and all of these thoughts that you have going into something so big is really, really um, difficult. So about week three, I started to feel a little bit, a little bit better. Um, and I started to get a little bit more of a like pep in my step. I started to kind of believe that I could recover. I could believe that I could, you know, talk again. Um, I was learning to talk again. I was practicing all my words. I was the best girl I was. <laughs> um, I wasn't very good at reading. Um, I couldn't read. I couldn't read a book. I was, I was very confused but I'd read like words that they would give me and I'd practice words. And I mean, like, you know, just a word like certificate and they'd have to, I'd have to like break that entire word down, certificate, whatever. Um, and literally learn how to say that word, you know, and then practice different letters of the alphabet. Like that's how it was for me. It was so bad. And then, um, that month passed, I got to see Liam once actually after the All Ireland, the Mayo Tyrone game, um, he called up, unfortunately, we all lost. And, um, but I was in the hospital at that time and um, he called up and he got to see me that evening, but I had to go outside. Like he wasn't even allowed into the hospital. Anyway, so a month passed and then I got home and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing that I gotta go home. But I was really, I just wasn't well. And I was trying my best to muddle through and, also manage, you know, work and manage things. I had things organized before I went in just in case something like this, this something like this happened and it did. Um, so I had kind of preempted that, you know, certain things were done and um, I had created a winter wellness program and all those things before I had actually gone into the hospital because I was afraid I was, I was afraid of this situation actually happening. Um, so then I got home and I got home for about two weeks and then I went back into hospital for three months. So I went to the National Rehabilitation Centre up in Dublin, Dunleary, and um, they were absolutely, they really were amazing. And I met some really amazing people in there, both from the um, professional side of things in terms of speech and language therapists and physios to the actual patients themselves um, I just they were just so amazing um, and just getting to know them and their stories and what happened to them and what they were going through and it really was eye-opening and I feel like this whole journey from me from the start of the pandemic and um, with everything that has happened um, the amount of self-reflection I've had, I've had no choice but to do because I've been left in a situation where that's all I had has really led me down a path of, I want, I want to help other people. And I, I'll be honest and say, I don't know if I ever 
if I ever didn't want to help other people, but I feel like I was helping other people because it was going to help validate me and people would like me if I was good at something or if I did this, then I would be appreciated. And I think that stems a lot from a lot of things that have gone on in the past for me. And because I didn't even like myself, I had absolutely, I had no, I just didn't like who, who I was and I didn't even know who I was. And I just kept going and going and going and going and never really, never really giving myself a chance to actually figure out what I like or what do I, what do I want? Um, I just, I didn't like myself and I was not happy in myself. And I feel like a lot of my life has been chasing something, chasing validation, chasing love, chasing respect, chasing, chasing something that everybody has within themselves. But I think when I was in a situation many years ago, I had to wear many different hats. And I think I got so used to wearing different hats that I actually completely forgot what it was like to not have any hats on. And I think when you're stripped so bare, like what I was and how I felt in the past couple of years, having gone through the surgery and the feelings of loneliness and emptiness and just self-deprivation and fear and loss and grief and pain that you have in some ways, two choices. You can use it as a reason why you are the way you are and why life is cruel. And this is an opportunity for you to sit with that pain and use that in a negative way for the rest of your life, if you want to. And you probably, if you like, could say, you know what, you're right. You've been through a hard time. You deserve, you blah, blah, blah. But for me, I just didn't want to sit with this anymore. I don't want to sit with this anymore. It's been a really challenging time dealing with going through the process of open brain surgery, having four angiograms, one of which an artery burst. And I nearly bled out in a room by myself and I had to be kept in overnight, which led to a week in Galway hospital because I was so unwell, which also led to an experience where a lady passed away in a bed beside me in Galway hospital and was treated what I can only say as very, very poorly by the staff. And I'll never forget that experience. I was there as they tried to resuscitate and save this lady's life and how we were left in a room and that poor lady was not taken care of in my uh, opinion to the standards that she should have been and was left there from 12 o'clock at night until 11 o'clock the next day. That trauma will live with me forever because there was so many experiences that I had throughout the time of the pandemic and the surgery and all of the tests and the times away from my baby and to go to hospitals and then to not be treated in, in ways that should be treated, um, all has taken its toll. And for me, I'm at a stage now where I've made huge life-changing decisions. I've sold a business that I spent my life wanting to create. I've stepped out of my comfort zone and done things that I just never thought that I would do. I'm changing myself and my life because I want to. And I don't want to spend the rest of my life chasing anything that doesn't serve me anymore. Because I've seen with my own hands, my own hands, I've seen with my own hands. <laughs> I have seen with my own eyes how short life actually is. 
I've been in it. I've witnessed it. I felt it. I thought that I was going to be that person. That's how serious I thought it was for me. And I feel very, very lucky to be in a position that I'm in now, that I have an opportunity to make the decision to change my life if I want to. And believe me, that decision has come with the biggest hardship and pain and struggle and stress and fear and panic that I'll ever probably feel in my life. And I sit here feeling more content, more proud of myself than I might ever feel beyond this point. Because to go through and navigate something that only I, in a sense, will probably really understand the full effects of. I'm really proud of how far that I've come. And I think that going forward in my life, I, I want to help people. And I want to help people because I genuinely don't want people to feel the same depths of fear and self-deprivation and lack of confidence and lack of friendship and connection that I felt because it is so utterly isolating and lonely and fearful. And I really struggled, not just in the last couple of years going through brain surgery and all of that, but it made me realize that I've struggled with this my whole life. And I don't want to struggle anymore. And I want to let go of the things that don't serve me anymore. And I am on a journey and a path to letting go of all of these things. And I am starting to shake and dust it all down because I've taken the steps that I needed to take. And those steps have been really, really, really hard. And I've given up things and I've lost things that have meant a huge deal to me. And I'm starting to be okay with that. Because I think life has a funny way of working itself out. But I do believe that we have to make it work. We can't just want it to work without taking any action. And I feel like in a year from now, I'm going to have a whole new story because I'm, I'm trying. And I think that's the key for me. I really am trying now because I see how precious life is. I see that there is kindness and love and goodness and happiness and all of those things in the world. And that is not something that I believed before. I've had an opportunity to meet the most amazing people that I've ever met in my life and connected with some people that I've just, I'll never, ever, ever forget in a journey through my hospitals, my health, my husband, my baby, the retreat that I've been on recently. So I really hope that if you're going through a challenging time, because I know how hard it is to look ahead and think that you can get out of that or that anything can change for you. Cause I really did not believe that that was possible. But I sit here now full of hope. I think that if you, can be hopeful, then it's possible to change. And if you can just look within yourself when you're going through a time that's really, really challenging and know that you will get there. You have to believe that you can. And then just take a small step step into that you know make room at the table for yourself there is enough space in the world for all of us don't ever forget your worth don't ever forget who you are and always remember that you are loved 
I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I know it's a very deep one this time, but I really do hope that you take something from it and I will talk to you again in the next episode.